So our reading is in two parts. The first is John chapter 1. So starting at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who'd been sent sent, questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And then we continue in chapter 3 at verse 22. Let's just over the page. At verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This is before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. This is God's word.
Our Father God, we uh, do thank you and praise you that you are a God who speaks, that you have revealed yourself to us. And we pray that your spirit who caused these words to be written would enable us to understand them, that we might know you. Amen. I'm sure you know there are all these designations of, uh, of what generation we live in, Generation X, Generation Y, the Millennials. The truth is, I think our generation is Generation X Factor. We're a generation that is sure that I deserve my time in the spotlight. Everyone should have the chance to shine. Everyone is a star. It's not just at primary school they tell people that. All of us are being told it all the time. And it makes for wonderful TV as you see this uh, succession of deluded wannabes make idiots of themselves on the stage at the X Factor or Britain's Got Talent auditions, which incidentally, uh, it reached its zenith with Stavros Flatley. It's all been downhill since then, so you can ignore the later series. If you've never seen it, when you get home, YouTube Stavros Flatley. Anyway, uh, why is there this desire to be on stage, though? Why is there this desire to, to be in the spotlight? Now, for some of us, uh, we think actually the last place I'd ever want to be is on stage with people staring at me. But inside all of us, even if we hate the thought of being on stage, there is this desire, this drive to be recognized, to be known, to be treated as important. There is this craving inside us for, for fame, for recognition, for praise. And deep down, it seems that we are all hardwired with, an, with a desire for significance, for, for our life to mean something. It's why so many men have midlife crises, that sense that I'm, I'm halfway through my working life and well, what have I achieved? What's, what's going to last when I'm gone? What, 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 what have I done that matters? quite how you answer that need with buying a motorbike or having an affair, I have no idea. But there is this desperate desire to matter. I need my life to to mean something in the final analysis. And our culture's answer, it seems to me, is that you need to know you are a star. That's how our culture answers it. You just need to find the right place and you will shine. All of us have the potential for greatness. And the healthy way to live is to find the place where you can be as great as you were always meant to be. Now, interestingly, it seems to me that this attitude has found its way into church life too. At the crass end of the songs that say, you will be a history maker. You are great and God will make you great. Each of us has this awesome God-given potential, we're told. Uh, Just waiting to be unlocked, God will make you a champion. Now, most of us are probably cynical anyway, and we can see through this sort of bunk. But there is a more subtle version of it, which I think infects even a church like ours. We still view serving Jesus in terms of my fulfillment. I need to to find a church, or I need to find a ministry where my gifts can really flourish. It would be it would just be such a tragic shame if those great gifts God has given you were, were wasted. You need to find some way to really be fulfilled. When we do serve, so often there's this ugly little bit of us which is more concerned really about my performance. What did people think about my sermon? What did people think about the way I led? How did my study go? Did I sing well? 
Now, the Bible shows us the way to fulfillment and significance, the significance that we crave in our souls, but it has nothing to do with finding the place where you can flourish. In fact, we find it's in me forgetting myself and following Jesus and serving others. Uh, Look with me at John. I will turn to chapter 3 and verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. He was the greatest religious leader for over 400 years. He sprang out of nowhere, bursting to to massive prominence in AD 30 all of a sudden. Uh, There were some funny rumours about something weird about his birth, but there was absolutely no denying his awesome spiritual power and his great popularity as the crowds just flocked to his teaching and preaching. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about John the Baptist. Now, throughout Israelite history, there have been a number of renewal movements where people have said, look, uh, the nation of God has turned away from God. We just live like the rest of the world and we need to come back to God. And John the Baptist called people out into the wilderness and he baptized them in the river. Uh, And his baptism was was symbolic. It was a, a, a cleansing in the river as a symbol that, look, I've been living for the world and I want to turn back and I want to be different. I want to live for God now. And Mark tells us in his gospel that the whole population of Jerusalem was going out into the wilderness to see John. In other words, Arsenal and Chelsea were playing to empty stadiums. Oxford Street was completely deserted because the entire population of London has gone out into Essex to the mouth of the Thames to be dunked in the water by some guy in weird clothes saying, you're all sinners and you need to turn back to God. It's an incredible thought. But John the Baptist has hit a a crisis moment in his revival. Uh, The writer of uh, John's Gospel is a different John. Uh, the John of John's Gospel. He records two things. Firstly, there are debates going on about how does John the Baptist's ministry fit in with uh, with the existing way people did Jewish religion? You know, is it the same thing? Is it a different religion? Is it a reform movement within Judaism? What's going on? And secondly, uh, how is John going to reform the Jewish nation if the crowds are deserting him for this new preacher, this new upstart called Jesus? Verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. You can imagine, well, if I've been washed in the river, do I need to do all the ceremonial washings of Judaism? And then verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about in chapter 1 as we read, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Now, the writer deliberately records the the concerns of John the Baptist's followers so that they serve as a contrast for the concerns of John the Baptist himself. And their issues are real and understandable. They're not being idiots when they say, look, what what about ceremonial washing? And look, what on earth are you going to do? Everybody's now following Jesus. But the point is, if we've read John chapter 1 to chapter 3, we will already have an inkling that they are missing the wood for the trees. If they could see what John the Baptist saw, they would they would realize that something has arrived, or rather someone has arrived, that mean neither of those issues matter very much at all. 
So how does the great prophet who is leading this revival respond when people leave him in their droves and turn to follow someone else? Verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. Extraordinary words. Imagine if six months before the next election, the Tories said, we're not sure Cameron's the right man to lead us. Uh, We want a new backbench MP to be the leader of the party. And the Prime Minister said, it's great for the country that a new leader has emerged who's better than me. He must become greater, I must become less. All power to him. That sort of humble attitude is just, it is so rare. But it's absolutely unheard of in great visionary leaders. Uh, You remember uh, Churchill's put-down about Clement Attlee when someone commented on Attlee's humility. He is indeed a humble man, and he has much to be humble about. But you see, John the Baptist wasn't a humble man with lots to be humble about. He was a great man. He was leading a revival that was changing the whole of Israel. He's on the front pages of every single newspaper. He's changing the lives of everybody. The rich and the powerful, even Herod, found his preaching mesmerizing and loved to listen to him. The dregs of society, the criminals, the the tabloid news people, they're turning back from their lives of crime and grime. Even battle-hardened soldiers are being changed by him. So how is it a man like that, with that power, that drive, that influence, can say something like this? Well, we see the answer in verses uh, 27 to 30, the radical recognition. First, John sees that God's sovereign hand is in his ministry. God's sovereign hand is in his ministry. Verse 27, to this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. John recognizes, in other words, that his own ministry is a gift from God. It is down to God how many people follow him. It's down to God how many people are baptized by him. All ministry, all service of God is under God's own sovereign hand. Ultimately, it is God who determines whether our church grows. It is God who determines whether you have the gifts to teach a small group or uh, play music or be the church administrator or what, or to, to earn lots and give generously. It is in God's hands how you serve him. And if it's in God's hands, it's not really down to you or me. So I won't feel proud if my church grows. And I won't feel devastated if the ministries that I've poured myself into, well, they seem to peter out and come to nothing. And I won't feel threatened if God raises up somebody else who does what I've always done, but so much better than me. He sees God's sovereign hand in his ministry. And secondly, verses 28 to 29, he is looking for God's Christ. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. See, it's easy to turn this section into a moral example. You should be like John the Baptist. You should be humble. You should not be proud. You should rejoice when other churches grow bigger than your church. You should not be small-minded and competitive in your attitude to other people. 
Well, those are all good and valid things, and we see an illustration of them here. But that's to miss the point about what's really going on. You see, John is not delighted that the crowds are leaving him because John just longs for an insignificant, quiet life out in the desert. John would not be delighted if the crowds were leaving him and going to the Pharisees. John is delighted because John sees that the crowds are leaving him and they are going to Jesus, who is the Christ, the bridegroom of God's people. You see, we're at a unique moment in the history of the world. We're at a unique moment in the the plan of God's salvation. Uh, John is a prophet, which means that like all the other prophets before him in the Old Testament, he is a signpost. A signpost pointing God's people to the one who was coming. See, if you read the Old Testament, it is incredible. It is full of such awesome deeds and acts by God. But in one sense, for all the amazing things that happen, the message of the Old Testament is you ain't seen nothing yet. Just you wait. Just you wait is the continual message of the Old Testament. Uh, God rescues his people from slavery with awesome plagues that devastate Egypt. He splits the Red Sea in two and people walk through us on dry land. He gives them a temple that's one of the wonders of the world, a gold-clad, glittering building where symbolically God, the great creator, dwells and listens to his people. He gives them kings like David who defeat even mighty giants like Goliath to protect and lead his people. But throughout, there is the promise that that is just a hint, a shadow, a sign of what will happen one day. There will be a rescue, not from some physical bondage that lasts for a few years, but from the eternal slavery to sin of our hearts that will take us to hell. A temple that's uh, not a, a brick building, but is the real physical presence of God with us here. A king who's not just anointed by God, but is God come in human flesh to lead us and protect us. A final sacrifice, a servant of God, who would take away our sins fully and forever. And all these hopes are bound up in this figure, the Christ, the anointed king, the long-promised one. And John sees that in Jesus is not just another in the line of prophets come to lead God's people, another signpost, another religious leader. God revealed to him that here, in this carpenter with his calloused hands, is God himself, the Christ, the King, come to lead, to save, to rescue, to fulfill all that has been promised in the whole Old Testament. And so John rejoices as people stop listening to his podcast, stop attending his conference, stop listening to his sermons, and turn to follow Jesus. Oh, do you remember the build-up to the Olympics, to London 2012? I guess the the World Cup's a more recent thing, but frankly it's too painful to think about. So we'll talk about the Olympics. London 2012, when Britain won medals. Well, the organisers spent a a small fortune in advertising. I don't know if you remember, in the the days and weeks and months beforehand, everywhere you looked there were giant billboards of Jessica Ennis and Chris Hoy and David Beckham. I don't know why he was there. He was never in the Olympics, but... He looks great on a billboard, so they stuck David Beckham up there as well. And the organisers wanted us to look at their adverts, their billboards. They wanted us to watch them, to to look at them. They spent money on them. Until Friday the, the 27th of July, 2012. At that point, they did not want you looking at the billboards anymore. 
because the Olympics had begun. The party had started and now the whole point of the billboards was that you stop looking at the adverts and you start enjoying the event. And John the Baptist is the final advert, the final prophet, the final signpost pointing to the main event. But as Jesus arrives, the party starts. And so John says, look, I'm just a billboard. The Olympics has begun. Stop looking at me. Go and enjoy everything that God has got for us in his Christ. John has a radical recognition of who Jesus is. And so John can say he must become greater. I must become less. And finally, in verses 31 to 36, uh, John, the writer of the gospel, now reflects a bit more on what John the Baptist has said and seen. And he starts to pull together some of the themes of chapter 3 that we've been enjoying these last few weeks. And in it, we start to see a bit more in these verses. Why is John the Baptist so excited, so full of joy at the arrival of Jesus? Now, these are deep waters, and we certainly don't have time to do them justice in the few minutes remaining to us. But it's still worth going for a quick paddle. So come with me to verses 31 to 36. And first we'll see there's a difference in origin between Jesus and between John the Baptist and all the other prophets who went before him. 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. There are always religious leaders claiming to have had some vision of heaven or the afterlife. There's a movie out at the moment about it. But when Jesus talks about heaven, the things of God, he's not talking about a vision he's had, a voice from heaven that's told him things, a revelation given to him. He's talking about things he's witnessed with his own eyes that he's seen physically. And how sad then that when Jesus came to us, verse 21 says that the, the vast majority of humanity, we just rejected him. But as we turn to verses 33 to 35, we see it is greater even than that. It's not just that Jesus came from heaven. He's more than just an eyewitness to the truth about God. It's not as if when, when Jesus writes about God, it's the exclusive authorized biography by one given unfettered access to God. It's better than that. It's the autobiography. This is God himself telling us about God. Verse 35. The father, sorry, 33. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Do you see, he says, if we accept Jesus' words are true, then verse 33, we're not accepting Jesus is true, we're accepting God is truthful. Because Jesus' words are the words of God. That is why Jesus is different and better than all the other prophets and every other religious leader. He is not a man telling us about God. He is God telling us about God. Verse 34, he has the spirit without limit. God sent his spirit on people in the Old Testament to equip them for a specific time, for a specific purpose. But it's not like that with Jesus. He has the spirit without limit. 
The Spirit is poured out on him so that everything he says is the word of God. Everything he does is empowered by God. He is always and only ever speaking and acting in the power of God. But he's more than just a Spirit-empowered man, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. He is God, the Son. This is not the the time really to get into the doctrine, the theory of the Trinity, unless you want to miss lunch and dinner. Um, But let's just see uh, some of the facts as they're presented. Not the theory, but just what facts are we given here about the Trinity? Well, the first most obvious thing is we see here God is not some eternal power, the unmoved mover in space. He is at very essence Father, Son and Holy Spirit, a relational God. And even here we start to see something of the heart of God. The fundamental nature of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is that God the Father loves God the Son. It's what we saw in the children's talk. There is something of that fun and joy and delight in the way that God the Father relates to God the Son. When John 3.16 and John 3.36 in this passage talk about eternal life, they're not so much talking about a quantity of life, a life that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. It's more about a quality of life. Life sharing in the life of God is what it means. Adopted into this wonderful relationship, into this family, knowing the Father's love as the Son knows that love. A fullness of, of life and joy, therefore. Eternal, because God is undying and God is eternal. And so when we are brought into his life, his love, we can never die because we are always being renewed and refreshed by this relationship, this life, this joy that goes on forever. True life, true happiness and lasting pleasure is not found in viewing Jesus as my personal genie. The one who makes all my dreams come true and gives me my best life now. The one who enables me to be a success and to shine. True life, true joy and lasting pleasure actually is found in losing myself and in living for him, in in coming to know God the Father as the Son knows the Father. See, when we make our lives about us, when I put me at the centre, I end up deeply unhappy actually for two reasons. First, because I'm surrounded by a world full of other people who are doing exactly the same. And we'll constantly be battling with and jostling and trying to use them because they want the limelight too. They also want to be on centre stage and they think the world revolves around them. And so I end up being trampled on and used by other people and I end up trying to do the same to them. And secondly, I end up unhappy because... The truth is that my ambitions and my achievements are just too small a cause to engage my heart. And my heart will shrivel to the size of my ambitions and my desires. It's just froth and foam, my desires and my achievements. It'll never satisfy my eternal appetites. I love the the story of Bletchley Park. Um, It was the code-breaking facility that really turned the course of the Second World War. I mean, what's not to love about the Nazis basically being defeated by a a bunch of tweed-jacket-wearing, pipe-smoking crossword fanatics? It's just brilliant. I love it. Uh, And by the end of the war, they were reading the Nazi generals' 
messages from the Führer before the generals themselves were reading them. And of course, their work was absolutely top secret. It's one of the amazing achievements of the war that nobody knew. And they had to keep it secret after the war too, which meant there were no medals, there were no parades, there's no plaque, no monument. No one knew what they'd done. And many of those men and women were looked down on because other people assumed they'd done nothing in the war. One of the the most significant um, people who helped build the Colossus machine, which helped break the Enigma code, he just used to have to tell people he worked on the sewers in the war. I was a sewer engineer. Some were ostracized by friends and family. At least one was disinherited by his father because his father was so ashamed that unlike him, he hadn't fought in the war. But they had this joyful knowledge that even if no one else thought much of them, They'd given their lives to the great cause of the age and they had made a difference. And what they'd done had been decisive. There was something that mattered more than getting to wear a medal and having other people think they were amazing and having public praise. And you and I have the chance to serve something far greater than just defeating Hitler. And we can do more than just serve a great leader like Churchill. We get to be adopted by and known personally by the greatest leader of all, our King and Captain Jesus Christ. He didn't defeat the Nazis, but defeated death and hell. Don't give in to the temptation of living for yourself, of, of writing the story of your life with you as the central character, with you as the hero, with everything being about you. We have the privilege of being invited to be characters in the great story that God is writing. The story of the redemption of the universe, the triumph of God over evil, the story whose hero is Jesus, and the story whose ending is far, far better than any of us can imagine. Enjoy being part of God's story. Enjoy praising Jesus the hero. Don't settle for singing karaoke when you can attend his great concert. So what would a church look like if we shared John the Baptist's attitude of wanting Jesus to be greater and me to be less? Well, a number of things that we could say. I guess it would be marked by joyful sacrificial service because we found what we were made for, which is to serve God and to serve other people. We know our God and Father through Jesus, his Son, and we're just thrilled to be able to serve him, no matter what needs doing. Uh, I think of a couple who used to to be here at this church, and they're both capable Bible teachers, now working as missionary medics abroad. And I'll never forget, um, when I was an apprentice over at the church flat, they came to see me, and uh, they said, look, um, because of the the shift work we do, we can't serve in lots of ways. We can't be on regular rotors, because uh, our shifts are always changing. But we were just wondering, could we, could we maybe clean the church? Um, it would have to be at a different time each week, and I'm sure that would be frustrating, but every week I'm sure we could find time to do that. Can we clean the church? Capable Bible teachers, can we clean the church? Willing to do anything. It's not about them. It's not about us. We just want to do whatever we can to serve Jesus. It's all about him, not about me. I guess, too, will be marked by humble honesty at church. I don't need to pretend I'm something great because I don't need to be something great. There's only one really great person here. It's Jesus. That's why we sing about him, not me. 
He's the star of the show. I'm here to worship him, not to convince other people that I'm worth worship. I guess two in our personal lives will be marked by evangelism. It's not enough that I'm a good person and that other people at work think I'm a really decent guy. If I do that, they'll think more of me, which is great if I want to be the hero of the story. But if I want Jesus to be the hero of the story, which he is, then I will want to tell them about the one who has changed me. I will want them to worship him rather than just think I'm a great person. So I won't just live differently, I'll speak differently about Jesus. Well, that's all very well if you're not feeling fulfilled. If you need direction and purpose for your life, sounds like Jesus is your man. But it's not for me, thanks. I don't feel that need. And I guess all of us will know people who would respond like that if they heard a message like this. Some of us here may well be thinking that ourselves. And that is where this passage has a sting in the tail. See, Jesus did not come to earth because he saw that we were a bit empty and lacking in fulfillment. He came to die because he saw we were in eternal, terrible danger. The final verse of the passage, John 3.36, reads, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. See, what you think about Jesus is not an academic issue, a dinner party discussion. It is life and death. Eternal life and eternal death are at stake. And Jesus is the dividing line between heaven and hell. All humanity is rightfully under the sentence of God because we have turned away, uh, not from uh, God, the religious leader of the Christian idea, but God who is the source of all truth, all goodness, all love, all beauty. And instead we've acted like our own little gods and lived for ourselves. And so rightfully, for turning away from truth and goodness and beauty and love, we face God's eternal condemnation. But Jesus, and only Jesus, has come to die for us on the cross and pay for our sins. And so only by trusting in Jesus can we be saved from eternal condemnation. See, Christianity is never less than the urgent message of rescue to people facing God's judgment for all eternity. But it is also the wonderful message of fulfillment for our restless hearts as we come to know the king and captain that we long to serve and as we find a cause worth giving ourselves to, a cause worth living for and even dying for. The the great theologian Augustine said, Oh God, you have made us for for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find true rest in you. And so if we turn to Jesus, we find forgiveness for our sins and we learn to live differently. Not promoting myself, my name, my need, but Jesus' great name, Jesus' great mission and the needs of others. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he died so that we might be saved from eternal wrath. And we thank you that as we come to him, we don't just find cold forgiveness, but we find love, relationship, meaning and fulfillment. And so, Father, we pray that we would learn to turn away from living for ourselves and would instead know the joy of living for you and loving one another.
Amen.